When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to the Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and the accomplished author of a new book, After the Ivory Tower Falls, Will Bunch. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Fields. Raycon and Miracle Brand in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, the FBI search warrant of Trump's Mar-a-Lago mansion is a political earthquake. We had a tsunami last week. Now we have an earthquake. The Republicans, with the exception of Chris Christie, are just in a dither. They really are. They are so upset. They're throwing fits. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says he's going to rake Merrick Garland over the coals next year. Now, keep in mind, Kevin McCarthy knows his whole future depends on Donald Trump. One wave could kill any hopes. McCarthy has. Kevin is Trump's poodle. Jim Jordan cries about the lack of integrity at the Justice Department. Jim Jordan, the lack of integrity. This is the guy who seven Ohio State wrestlers say has covered up and lied about a sexual abuse scandal there. So I, at the same time, I have to say there are worried Democrats. They're worried how big a deal is this? Is it just about some documents that shouldn't have been taken? Does it stop our political momentum? First, we don't know what the federal government is seeking, and for a while they're not going to be able to tell us, and we don't know what Trump is hiding. Uh, He illicitly took documents from the White House that belongs to the public, to the people, the archives. Two, this action was approved by Merrick Garland, a very cautious attorney general and a very judicious man, Uh, the FBI director Christopher Wray, a Trump appointee, and a judge in Florida. My very strong suspicion is there's stuff in these boxes that are going to prove incriminating to Donald Trump and not just on what documents he took from the White House. Anything that they take, anything they get there can be used. uh, And there's enough of other cases that there may well be help in some of those. James? Well, I'm not worried. I mean, I can't imagine what they went through to execute this warrant. I think you can imagine how many times Merrick Garland read the text. I can't imagine how many times Christopher Wray read the text, who, by the way, the FBI director is a Trump appointee, just to uh, reiterate that uh, to our listeners. Uh, the, the magistrate, the judicial official, I bet you he read this thing a hundred times. And, you know, again, it's easy to clear up. Trump can release it, of course, which he will not do. Uh, these things have to be pretty specific, and you know there was a lot of thought going into it before they decide to go ask the judge to sign it and execute this warrant. So I'm not. I think he's a criminal. I've always thought that, and I think that they have got him cornered now, and I think he knows it. Yeah, I think you're right. And it was uh, Eric Trump who said, uh, "Of course." Uh, Biden uh, knew about it because that's the way we operate. Yeah, it is the way you operated, uh, Eric Trump and your uh, and your family. Uh, I don't think there's any question that Biden didn't know about it. I think Merrick Garland is the kind of attorney general who uh, thinks that that's not something that you tell a president. You, you know, Mitch McConnell, of course, he hates Trump, but he was very circumspect in what he said about yeah. There's a couple others besides Chris Christie, the former U.S. attorney. Chris Christie is the one who knows what yeah. goes into this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he really was. Um, you know, and in the separate New York case, 
uh, Donald Trump uh, on Wednesday morning took the Fifth Amendment. This is the case about uh, that the New York Attorney General uh, is is uh, investigating him about his <coughs> shenanigans with his company. Now, you know, everybody is entitled to that constitutional protection, James. But, of course, it was Donald Trump in the past who repeatedly has said anybody who took the Fifth, that's an admission of guilt. Donald, do you still feel that way? Yeah, you know... Dick Cheney called him a coward in an ad for his daughter, Liz. And he said repeatedly, you take the fifth, you're guilty. And what's really striking about this is the great Donald Trump is scared of a black female. And all you, uh, you know, when you read some of your Trumpist friends, uh, ask them, well, why is your, your guy such a, such a ballsy guy? Why is he quivering and 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 taking the Fifth Amendment in front of a of, of a black female? I mean, it looks like he could stand up to that, doesn't it? The truth of the matter is, he is a coward. Dick Cheney's right. Yeah, he may be afraid of two black female uh, prosecutors, one in New York yeah, and, and one, one in, in one in Fulton County too. <laughs> yeah, so we'll be, see. That would be deliciously ironic. It, it sure would be, James. Let's not overlook a big effing deal, as Joe Biden might say in the Senate. They, uh, it's like, you know, when House approval, they approved the huge bill, the most important action ever taken on climate. It would reduce drug prices. Uh, it would hold down affordable health care premiums. Uh, and it would, uh, it would take away some privileges and some tax loopholes that wealthy businesses uh, use to avoid taxes. You know, it, it's not a perfect bill. It doesn't have enough stuff for poor people. Child tax credit pre-K, anti-hunger measures. And Kirsten Cinnamon went in the tank for wealthy hedge fund and private equity managers to keep their indefensible carried interest loophole. I guess more money for her in the next campaign. But you, but you got to say you, that you give a lot of credit to Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin, who I have criticized. They delivered when it counted. Uh, Schumer's patience and perseverance was really impressive. You put this together with last year's COVID relief bill, the biggest infrastructure measure in generations, a modest but helpful gun bill, the big chips semiconductor bill. That's a pretty major legislative agenda to talk about this fall. You think any of these idiot leftists that went to West Virginia and weren't the primary Joe Manchin, do you think there's any chance that they realize just how massive Idiots they are, I doubt it. They're, 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 these people are so stupid, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Thank you, Senator Manchin. Hey, finally, James, there were uh, a whole bunch, a handful of uh, primaries, not quite as big as the week before. Uh, but I think a couple things that came out of it. One, if anyone had any doubt, Trump dominates the Republican Party. I'm, uh, the, and I think the Wisconsin governorship was a classic example. This uh, know-nothing uh, businessman, doesn't even live in the state a lot of the time, came in. He got Trump's endorsement. He's an election denier, uh, and he won that primary. Uh, I think he, I hope he's going to lose in the fall. But uh, word came that one of the Washington congressmen, one of the 10 who voted for impeachment, actually lost her primary the week before. And James, I think it's probably that at the end of the season, only one or two of those 10 Republicans, some of whom were the potential stars in that class, Liz Cheney certainly among them, and Congressman Gonzalez from Ohio, have been obliterated because the Republican Party is a Trump party now. Look, I'm not interested. The, the Republican Party is Trump, all right? Or, or, and is Trumpism, and that's, that's just what we are. One thing I want to address last night, there was a really significant election in the Minnesota 1st Congressional District. It's a district that has a Cook PBI of R plus 8, which means in a kind of normal year that went it to 58-42. It actually came in at like 52-48, which is a breathtaking result. You have to look at this in combination with the special Senate election, state Senate election in Nebraska, and the ballot measure in Kansas, which was a wipeout. There's also a big determinative factor that a lot of quants look at, and that is turnout in Washington state primaries. Washington state primaries are really pretty good predictor of what's going to happen in November. And that number is reflective of 2020. Um, I, I don't want to say the person's name, but a, a, a top election prognosticator called me this morning after Minnesota and said, you know, it's probably 50-50 in the House now. 
I, I, there is zero evidence, zero evidence right now. Okay, I can change. But I, there's no evidence I see that points to a Republican wave. I'm sorry. And it's just become the thing to say. You, you just, well, it's going to be a big Republican year. I'll tell you that. Traditionally, look at what happens in every RP election. For some reason, when people go vote, and you, you usually, the canary in the coal mine is a lot of these special elections or by-elections, what they call them in, in, in parliamentary democracies. They're not indicating anything remotely like a Republican wave. And if we're being fair with our listeners, and we should always try to be fair with our listeners, this may change, but right now, you're in this hunt. You're probably a favorite. You are a favorite to keep the Senate. And the House, as of this date, is not out of reach. Well, it's good that there's not, not a wave, that's for sure. But actually, I think the country can't even afford a ripple. Uh, I mean, well, if the House goes if the House goes Republican, there will be a price to be paid, even yeah, if it's only I, by I, three or four I, votes, I, because they're 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 so out of touch. Senate, I, I agree. I think the odds are that uh, I know some top Democrats think they're likely to win four Republican seats. They got one or two of theirs that are in trouble. But, you know, I'm, 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 hoping, I'm hoping Democrats will do better than avoid a wave. Well, I, I, again, I can't, I can't in good conscience say that, that I, I believe that we're going to keep the House, but I can't in good conscience say that I know we're going to lose the House. And that's just, yeah, you're right. It, it would be, in, in, but the Senate and the, the candidate quality differential, you cannot tell me that Tim Ryan does not have a real, real shot in Ohio. Not after I see Nebraska, Kansas, Minnesota. Well, the you, quality you, candidate. I, I, I think is, we got a real shot in Iowa. Well, the quality candidate. The it difference between quality difference. is huge. It's it's Ohio. Huge. It's Nevada. It's North Carolina. It's Pennsylvania. It's, it's, I mean, it's, Iowa. it's all over Iowa with a young admiral. Middle-aged right. admiral against a, against a, running against a man who will be 95 at the end old. of the And everybody term. knows it. Who yeah. claimed that he voted for the insulin cap. And it brought a thing with him saying no. And complained that he had to work on Saturday. Could you imagine being a United States senator and having to work on Saturday? Oh, my God. What a, what a travesty. Well, Michael Gardner says, says that everybody ought to do that every 50 years. All right, we'll be back with a lot more of that uh, in the weeks to come because we, we only have, we have less than three months now uh, until a hugely important election. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Will Bunch, a top reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer, has written a provocative book after the ivory tower falls about the failings of American higher education. Will, college education for many was the American dream, as you note, starting with the GI Bill after World War II. You say this has turned into really sometimes more of a nightmare. What happened? Well, I mean, basically college got privatized. I mean, really, the big questions about college, and, and they really hovered over us ever since World War II, is who is college for and who's going to pay for it? And um, on the who's going to pay for it front, you know, in, in the golden era of college, which I consider the 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe the early 70s, um, College was almost a public good, you know, not, not, not quite fully the way that K-12 education is, but um, tuition was, was so low at our public universities. And, and, and as you may remember, University of California, uh, City, City University of New York, those schools were tuition free up until the 1970s. And, um, uh, uh, and, and it was the American dream. It was, the, it was a way for middle-class families uh, for their kids to do to do better th than the generation that came before it, and um, uh, in the 70s, in, in addition to in addition to the economic you know uh, shocks that the country experienced, th there was also a political backlash that played a huge role in this. You know, um, Ronald Reagan was the avatar of this. He he um, really 
became governor of California and launched his career on the backs of running against student protest. And he, he kind of epitomized this wider backlash against student protests on campuses, which, which led to less governmental support. And you started seeing state legislatures uh, reduce rather, rather than increase the amount of money they were spending on, on higher education. And, and this resulted in, in, in higher tuitions and higher tuitions resulted in people having to borrow the money. And now, you know, here we are a few decades later and we have a $1.75 trillion student debt crisis. You know, as well as California, two of the great uh, state universities in America were the University of Wisconsin at Madison and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They more recently, too, have been hit with uh, insidious political interference, which has created, uh, you know, real problems uh, at, at, at those places, hasn't it, Will? Yes. I mean, I mean, these are these are the accolades of Ronald, Ronald Reagan. Uh, you know, Scott Walker is just an amazing example. I mean, he's He's a guy who had a picture of Ronald Reagan uh, over his desk in his dorm room in, in Marquette University, which which he which he decided to drop out of and not graduate. And and his 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 hostility towards the idea of of college, you know, and, and the idea that uh, a college campus is a place to learn critical thinking, uh, really really covered decisions, really colored excuse me decisions that he made as governor. Uh, you know, not only did he. Not only did he reduce state support for, for the public universities, which, you know, similar, similar to Republican governors all over the country, uh, but he also, you know, went, at, went after tenure because he, he thought that too many of these professors were, were liberals who were critical of his administration. And then he took it a step further. He even tried to change the very mission statement of the University of Wisconsin, which um, uh, actually is a famous famous much discussed mission statement, part of something called the Wisconsin Way, where you know, learning and research and higher education was part, part of the general ethos of you know, improving the state through better services and, and better ways of doing things. And, and uh, the, the school's mantra was that the university's purpose was to search for the truth. And Scott Walker wanted to take those words out of the statement. And he wanted to replace it with just boilerplate language that the university is, is to develop the workforce. You know, the, this idea that colleges are just to train the next generation of, of, of you know, capitalist workers, uh, you know, to join the system. And, um, you know, if, if they had to borrow money for that, for that place in the system, then they could work to pay it back. And, uh, and uh, you know, Scott Walker and, and also in North Carolina, you've seen Republicans totally take over the boards of trustees of these universities. And, and appointing people not because of their love of academics, but because of their political connections to the Republican Party. And uh, it's caused all kinds of turmoil on these campuses. You also, uh, in a different way, uh, write about a small little school that I'm familiar with, I think it's quite a good school, Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, and the kind of the contrast between that college and uh, the surrounding communities. Yeah, I, wa I wanted to spend time in Kenyon, and, you know, and it, it, it is a great school. I mean, it's produced amazing people like Paul Newman and E.L. Doctorow and Olaf right. Palma, the, the former uh, prime minister of Sweden, were all, all, all uh, alumni of, of Kenyon. And, um, you know, today, today the uh, tuition at Kenyon is $76,000. Now, not yeah. everybody pays full freight, obviously, but, um, you know, uh, because of its reputation and because of its cost, uh, I think 20% of the students there are from the top 1% of, of families, uh, family earners, and more than half are from the top 20%. And these people tend not to come, obviously, from the local community. They come from very wealthy parts of Los Angeles, New York, places like that. And they're going to school in this, in, in this county, and, and this is why I wanted to go out there, that it's the heart of Trump country, you know, 75% of the people in Knox County, Ohio, voted for, voted for Trump, uh, while while Gambier, Ohio, this this small quaint village where Kenyon is located, uh, Biden got eighty nine percent of the vote, and um, you know you, you see this play out in different ways. You know, I talk to people about the distrust between the college community and, and the local working class community. You know, people, uh, you know, political activists in Mount Vernon, the county seat down the road. You know, think that Kenyon is this hotbed of, you know, people people teaching, uh, you know, all kinds of L LGBT, LGBTQ related 
you know, deviance in their opinion. Um, uh, uh, you know, me meanwhile, uh, on Kenyon, you know, black and brown students complain about being racially profiled by the sheriff deputies in the county. So um, uh, uh, I, I just found this place to be emblematic of, of the chasm in this country that we have between the two tribes, you know, the college educated and the people without college degrees. Yeah. James. So, well, I mean, first of all, congratulations on a remarkable achievement in exposing something. The philosopher longshoreman Eric Hoffer said something to me that sums up higher ed. Every great, great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. Do you think it's fair to call higher ed in the United States a racket? On some level, sure. You know, um, you know, like like any like anything where a lot of money is thrown around, all, all kinds of sharks entered the water, right? Um, you know, there's a, I devote a section in the book to these for-profit universities, which you know over over the over the last twenty years became a much more substantial player because you know they they employed these boiler room marketing tactics to these vulnerable kids. You know, you've got, you've got kids, especially in kind of working class neighborhoods who instinctively know that they're not going to get ahead in life the way things are structured now, if they don't get that piece of paper, a college diploma. And people take advantage of that. You know, the, these, these schools like Corinthian College, which, you know, uh, uh, went out of business and was, was forced to pay people the money back finally. But, um, you know, uh, uh, they, they have business plans in which um, the business plan is that kids borrow as much federally guaranteed loan money as they can. And that's basically the tuition. Um, and, you know, they, they get the money and, and the kids, kids are responsible for paying it back. And uh, when they graduate from these schools, often they find that the skills they got, you know, were not good enough for the job market to get jobs that where they can pay the loans back. And right. it, it's really caused this crisis to balloon. Um, so talk, yeah. So, so talk a little bit, because one of my favorite uh, academics is Kathy Kramer at the University of Wisconsin. And she wrote a, a, a book that got ne not near enough attention as it did about the way that people in rural Wisconsin feel about Madison, where the University of Wisconsin is. Yeah, no, I, I read I read her book, which is fantastic. I can't recommend right. it highly enough. And uh, and uh, I, I include some of this in the book of what she wrote. Um, you know, you know, she 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 went all over northern Wisconsin, and she you know sat in on the card games, and you know went ice fishing or whatever with these folks, and heard what they had to say about people from the university and people from the state bureaucrats that that they had to deal with, and. You know that the the feeling is that you know these are people who you know can't screw in a light bulb. You know that these you know that these uh, state wildlife bureaucrats who, who don't know how to you know screw together a fishing rod come up and t and tell them you know tell them how many fish they can catch or or whatever. And um, you know that there's just incredible resentment. You know um, you know this situation that's developed over decades where people from these rural communities don't really have good access now to, 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 to higher education and, and can't afford it. And, and so they, they, they resent, you know, that the responses they resented and distrusted. And, you know, so, something, something I really try and drill down to in the book, because I think it's, I think it's people feel it, but they don't really maybe understand it on, on the intellectual level. But, you know, we, we, we basically have been selling this country for decades as a meritocracy, right? You know, um, this idea that, Everybody's got the opportunity to get ahead, but whether you get ahead or not is whether you seize that opportunity, you know, whether you make the most of it by getting and getting the college degree is really the key, the key factor in all this. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's rigged. It's rigged. It's not a real, it's not real. It's not a real meritocracy. It's a rigged, it's a rigged system. So my own experience is I spent, uh, Three years teaching at Northern Virginia Community College, which is a community college. I spent nine at Tulane, which by any definition is an expensive, elite, private university. Sure. And I spent four years at LSU, which is by anybody's definition, a large state university. And I want to talk, because there is non-college college resentment, okay? There, within college graduates, there's huge resentment. Mm -hmm. And there's really resentment from people that went to schools like LSU or Penn State or you know, the University of Arizona State, anything like that. 
and these elite colleges that frankly look down on us. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you're a sports fan. On, yeah, of course. On January 13th, 2020, LSU played Clemson for the national championship in the Superdome. The LSU Tiger Stadium is about 78 miles away from the Superdome. The president of LSU said, we're not going to have class tomorrow. You couldn't imagine why would you really want you know, <laughs> 25,000 drunk people. And a guy by the name of Benjamin Applebaum, Benjamin Applebaum, an editorial board member of the New York Times, a graduate of, of an Ivy League school, sent out a tweet. And this was during the campaign. He says, does the Warren Sanders uh, debt forgiveness cover real schools? Or does it cover schools like LSU that let out classes for a football game? And you know what? Every All of his friends agreed with him. That's the problem. It's not just that he's an asshole. All of the people that run around with him agree with him. Yeah, and I mean, I got to tell you, the resentment, you know, why should I, why should somebody that goes to Kenyon College that racks up $250,000 in debt that could have gone to the University of Cincinnati and racked up $20,000 in debt, why should I pay that off? Yeah, you know, you really hit on something, James. You know, I mean, so so much of so much of the college is about things like status and you know, think you, you know your social status. You know, think I, I was going to mention you. Pr you probably remember this whole varsity blues scandal from a couple oh, years sure. ago. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, where you had where you had you know Lori Loughlin and and uh, Felicity Huffman, you know, and, and their families. The you know the, the, these rich actors and and other rich people. Um, and think about it, their kids honestly didn't even have to go to college, really. I mean, they could just set up a trust fund and their kids kids would probably be fine. But, you know, they, they had to get their kids not just into college, but into certain colleges. You know, it, it couldn't be like even, you know, it's, it's like University of California wasn't good enough. It had to be USC, right? Or right. it had to be Yale. And right. the, lengths that the, the lengths that they would, you know, cheat and pretend to be, you know, crew stars or fencing stars or, or payoff people to take the SATs because, because of the status, because they felt that their self-worth as a family would be less if their kid didn't go to one of these elite schools. And, 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 and that's where it starts, you know? Um, uh, uh, again, that, that's, you know, we're talking about how this system, which was this great idea, this American dream, you know, that like uh, get, you know, go to a college campus for a few years, you know, study with these brilliant scholars and, and you're going to come out on the other side smarter and, and better prepared for the world than, than your parents were, you know. Um, uh, it's just another way this idea has gotten corrupted, you know, that, uh, um, that, that you know, people, people aren't going to college so much to learn. And, and you can see it in the numbers, you know, in the 60s, the average college student studied 40 hours a week by Really, two thousand. That was twenty four hours, and I can guarantee you, it's less than that now. You know, and uh, and it's it's more about status and, and less about the learning. So we, we need to rethink so much of this. We really do. Uh, Albert, I'm going to return Will to James brought up um, student debt. You have um, advocated for giving uh, one point seven five trillion, or most of it, I guess. Uh, as many of these students were duped. They sure were duped. I agree with that. But critics say a fair share of that money, or some of it, would go to upper middle class, relatively affluent Americans. And wouldn't that just exacerbate the resentments of those people who live outside of, who live in Knox County and didn't go to college, that the federal government is paying off the debt that was, that was uh, run up by those that did? Well, I, I, would, I would say two, two different things in response to that. One yeah. is I think, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about who really has been hurt by the debt crisis. Uh, right. You know, there've been a number of studies that the people who really suffered the most are, are, are black and brown students, because which makes sense when you think about it, because, you know, we have this wealth gap in this country, right? You know, where the, where the net, worth, net worth of the typical white family is about 20 times the net worth of, of the typical black household. And for something like college, that's so critical because you don't have you know, you don't have the investment pool or whatever, or you can't, you can't borrow against your house or, you know, at, at a lower rate or whatever to pay for college. You know, these people, some people, uh, you know, and, and there's this great yearning among, among uh, black and brown young people, just like there were among the young people of the 40s and 50s and 60s to, you know, to get into, to get into the upper middle class, you know, to, to, 
to get a good white collar movement. So, so I, I think I think people who, who see who see the debt forgiveness as a as a, as a bailout for the upper class are, are looking at it the wrong way. But the, the other the other point I'd make though is, on the other hand, I, I agree with I agree with those critics on something else, which is, I don't think you can just do the debt forgiveness and, and just leave it at that for a couple of reasons. One. It, it, that is that is that is unfair, though. I think to the, you know, 63% of, of people of adults in this country don't have a four-year degree, and you know, about a third of maybe a third of people are probably never going to set foot on a college campus of any kind in their lifetime. And we we should be offering opportunities for betterment for those people as well, um, uh, and, and not say you know. Go to college, or, or else you're a loser. But, but uh, you, know, I mean, free trade school. You know, especially there's. I mean, there's a great demand for people who have these who have these skills. Community colleges. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it was it was very frustrating to see how quickly Biden's push for free community college was swatted away because that that would just be that would just be a huge boost for millions of people. Um, you know, I, I I talk in the book about. Um, uh, the government uh, sponsoring and promoting a gap year for 18-year-olds. Yeah, national uh, service. Where, where people can do, you know, and, and and there's been talk. In fact, I think I think uh, Bernie Sanders introduced an amendment in the Voterama this last weekend about the uh, uh, climate change bill um, to have the to have the civilian uh, climate corps, which would be modeled after FDR's famous civilian conservation corps, which was this incredibly successful program from the New Deal in which. Uh, you know, millions of people who were unemployed uh, really built up our national parks. If you go to a national park today, you'll see, you know, smoke towers and other things that were built by the Civilian Conservation Corps. It was really, and, and we can do that again. And it would, it would be such a boon to our young people. But the, the, solution, the solution has got to be comprehensive and, and not, just, not just wiping out the debt. And, and, and you've got to address the affordability of, of college, of pub, at least public universities, you've got to address the affordability in general because otherwise, you know, if you just forgive debt and do nothing else, well, what about this year's freshmen? They, well, they yeah, they're going to just run it up again. I mean, public yeah. colleges now cost 40, 50 grand uh, in some places. Uh, I guess a lot of that's due to the cutbacks in state funding, but you can explain that. And and why does Kenyon cost seventy six thousand? Not picking on Kenyon, the same could be said of Duke or Stanford. Why? why I mean, that's an astronomical increase. Why? I think I think it's I think it's a couple of well, several things. You know, I mean, obviously certain costs have increased. Um, um, you know, colleges have become a lot more bureaucratic, and and we all know they have huge administrations. You know, whether whether that whether those administrative costs are necessary or bloated is is a subject of debate, but uh, and it's not something I drilled deeply into. But you know, they, they 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 clearly their expenses have risen. But also, but also you know colleges charge that much because they can. You know they they, they uh, you know elite private schools found in the 70s, 80s, and 90s um, that they did better when they charged based on prestige rather than what, rather than trying to compete students by offering a better price. And it really kicked off these prestige wars where schools are in, in this kind of arms race to build things like lazy rivers running through campus or rock climbing right. walls, you know, these state-of-the-art gyms. Because uh, if they feel like they, if they don't offer these, you know, frankly, in some cases, I would call them luxury amenities. If, you know, if they don't offer these things, um, then they feel like they're, they're going to lose out and competing for, for the best students or, or students. And you know the fact the fact that enough families can pay this, and uh, you know, I mean, you've seen an increase in, in foreign students in the 21st century, especially from China, and you've seen more and more public state universities uh, spend way too much time recruiting rich kids from out of state as opposed to marketing themselves to the kids in their own state, which is supposedly their reason for existence, right? And and the reason is and the reason is because those kids play pay full freight. Yeah. Is, is there any model, any place that's doing it right? Well, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, you can, you can start, uh, you can start, well, a couple of things. I mean, you, overall, I mean, we should start by looking at how they do it in Europe, obviously, because in Europe, um, uh, public education is, 
is either free or, you know, I mean, nothing, nothing's ever free in my opinion. There might be living expenses or other things, right. but I mean, the cost, the cost is, is much lower. Although I, I would say, I would say Europe, the other thing about Europe is, you know, universities are free, but they also have better paths for people to go into trades and people who are trade workers get more respect in that, in those societies and, and, they, and they have more benefits like vacation time and, and healthcare. So, um, it's complicated, you know. I mean, I mean, there are there are movements of trying to get back to the roots of, of colleges, small colleges that are more about the liberal arts and and studying the great thinkers and, and less about you know football and status and or even career preparation. But you know, the, these these schools are experimental and they're small. I mean, I wrote about them in the book, but they're also they're also kind of a drop in the bucket. You know, I mean, I mean, James is right. I mean, the big you know the big the bottom of the pyramid is the biggest layer, and that's community colleges. You know, if, if, you know we, we, I think we're overlooking a remarkable resource that already exists if, if we overlook our community colleges. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. James? So, so well, I was involved with a film called Starving the Beast, and it was about funding for public universities. I, I would actually recommend it. I'm, I'm in it, so <laughs> more than that, I think. But what yeah. happened was education became a commodity. And that's what they said. You got to look at it in a commodity. And so it's a barrel of oil. It's a ounce of gold. It's just something. And so why should the state of Wisconsin subsidize people to learn Shakespeare in Madison? What what does that promote to the collective good of the state? If you, if you want to go to Kenyan and pay $75,000 and study Shakespeare, that's your own business. But we, we'll pay for you if you want to be a dental hygienist or you, you want you know a profession like that, and that's a that's a point that they make that people find attractive. Why am I subsidizing? Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it, it's funny to hear you say that because it's almost like you're quoting Ronald Reagan because that's exactly right, right. what he said in 1967. He said, "Why why should taxpayers subsidize the intellectual curiosity of young people?" And that's the question. I'll, I'll, well, I'll tell you why. Um, okay. Look at what look at what's happening with climate change. Look, at, you know, look right. at look at the fact that the United States has a citizen citizenry that has rates of people who, who don't believe that climate change is real, who deny its very existence at a level that no other country, no other civilized country in the world has. Look at look at QAnon. Look at look at look at look at Donald Trump and the big lie. Look at look at what happened on January sixth. I mean, I, I know it's kind of an abstract thing. I mean, I can't say, you know, I can't tell you, oh, if you had gone to this university and taken this course, you definitely right. wouldn't believe in QAnon or, you, you know, but, but broadly, you know, the, the idea of supporting the idea of teaching our young people to be critical thinkers, you know, teaching yeah, our young look, people. I, I, I totally, totally agree with you. Why would big business want people to go to university and study labor relations in the United States. <laughs> they want compliant people. This is a new trend I want to talk to you about. But I actually had it happen to me at both Tulane and LSU where the dean kind of subtly says, you know, sometimes, James, you, you got to look at these students like they're consumers. Fuck that. They're yeah. not consumers. They're students. I'm a professor. They don't know as much as me. I'm not selling, you know, I mean, it, this is not about me making you comfortable i'm talking about intellectually i think that you know if you know if you're not prepared you're not a consumer you're unprepared yeah, this this has been this has been the this has been the right-wing argument ever since the time of reagan you know that uh, that uh, uh that if we, we need to make this a capitalist venture where you know like you said the students are, are the product or, or you know the people people need to invest in themselves so they have some skin in the game you know that the people if people pay money, even if, if people are paying for this, even if they have to borrow the money and pay it back, that's that's all the better because that that locks them into this. Now they're part of the system, right? And when oh, yeah. when they're going to college for free, the, the argument on the right goes, yeah, then, then they're going to then they're going to destroy the system. Yeah, yeah, all you would have is a more educated workforce, which is the last thing these right wingers want. Is a thinking <laughs> employee. But the funny thing, the funny thing is, a, a lot of corporations actually. Aren't, aren't happy with the kids coming out of college and and, and, and and some of it is because they're not getting you know the kind of critical thinking or, or liberal education that, the, that they used to so it's kind of, you know it's typical typical self-destructive corporate uh, thinking right so. absolutely you know one more thing before I turn it over to Albert 
I, I hear from a lot of, you know, what they're looking for and what college teaches, you, you can't have kids right enough. The ability to distill and express yourself is, is, a, is, a, is a real skill. It's just a, it's a skill like being a bricklayer. It's a skill like being a watchmaker. It's a skill like being a, a, a dentist. And you know that because you're a writer. And the ability to convey thoughts in, in, in a cogent way is, is a real skill, and we should, we should always understand that. I mean, we can't all write the Gettysburg Address, I understand that, but that, that's a real skill. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and again, it's, 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 it's one of the biggest complaints of, of corporate recruiters, of hiring people who, who, who don't have that writing skills. You know, and especially, right. you know, especially now in the internet age, because you know, we're, now, we're now hitting on the generations who, who came of age writing, writing texts and then tweets, you know, and, right. um, I mean, I mean, I see it. I see it as a journalist. You know, I, I, I grew up in the era of, you know, Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson and writers like that. And the young writers that come along, just don't have that same desire to have that flair. You know, and, and uh, uh, it's, it's, I think it's a deficit in our education. You know, tell those recruiters I mean, to tell their that their bosses to quit supporting candidates that want to disinvest in higher education. And if you invest in higher education more, you're going to have more skilled employees. Albert, I've taken up too much time back to you. Well, okay. Well, well, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you, you've done a great service, I think, with this book. After the ivory tower falls, uh, it really uh, makes you think a great deal about uh, what I think. I think American higher education still is the envy of part of the world, but it's, it's, it's slipping, I think, and you make that clear, Will. So thank you very much for being with us. Oh, it was so much fun, uh, James, yeah. Al, both of you, to, 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 thank to you. talk with both of you. I really, I, I really I, got I, I'll tell, tell you one you. quick uh, a Kenyan story. Uh, <laughs> Bob Novak and I used to debate at Kenyan College a couple times a year as kids went there. And, oh, wow. uh, and one year we went out there and I did a, I called ahead of time and I found out that 40% of the kids were on some kind of uh, assistance. Uh, this is back 20 years ago. And yeah. uh, so Novak always would score his points. And I, I figured 40% of the kids in the audience were going to be in student assistance. So I said, how many people here get some kind of student aid? About half the hands went up. I said, the difference, this is, sums up this whole debate. I think you're a credit to Kenyon College and you make it a better place. Bob Novak thinks you belong at Ohio State. Now, it may have been demagoguery. It may not have been a good point, <laughs> but God damn it worked. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that I'm sure the room roared. And said, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Will, thank you so much and good luck. I hope the book is selling well. All right, now for the questions, uh, and they're so good, James. A lot of them, as we near uh, November 8th, are about the election. Uh, let, let's start with uh, Richard in Jacksonville, Florida. He said, I just attended an event for Nikki Freed, and I was spellbound. If DeSantis' lust for the presidency forces him to go hard right all the time, doesn't that open the door to a potential Democratic victory this November in the Florida gubernatorial contest? Well, Funny you should ask something I know about. I've publicly said I'm for Nikki Freed, and I wanted to go and campaign with her, but I, I, I can't. She was being a panhandle, and I had to be, I have to be in Kansas because I'm giving the keynote at the Democratic Fest in Wichita during that time. I, there was some St. Petersburg poll that showed her way behind Charlie Chris. I don't have anything against Charlie Chris. He was a Republican. He's a former governor. He's now a Democratic congressman. But I think Nikki would give that ticket a, a shot in the arm. Val Demings is one of our better Senate candidates. And if somehow or another Nikki were to win that primary, I, 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 I'm, you know, I said I, I, I said I thought we could win in Kansas. I said I thought we'd win both seats in Georgia. If if Nick and I maybe with Charlie it'll be up certainly would be for him a million times over Ron DeSantis. But I think Mick and I think Nikki is a stronger choice, and I'm glad to see that she made such a favorable impression on you. Yeah, uh, I, she seems very impressive. Tom in Menasha, Wisconsin says. He's asking me, is there going to be any significant repercussions for the Alex Jones-Sandy Hook defamation case 
for mainstream media? Is there a chance now it can set a precedent that might allow activists on the other side of the political spectrum to file big defamation cases against major publications when they get a story wrong? Uh, Tom, I'm not much worried about any Alex Jones precedent. That was so clearly defamatory. Uh, if the two tests that were set in 1964 by the Times v. Sullivan uh, was a reckless uh, disregard of facts or, or, or malicious intent, Alex Jones easily met both of those tests. Uh, he was, his, his lawyers sent his emails, which he lied about, to the other side. Uh, everything he did was malicious. Everything he did was with not only a reckless disregard of facts, it was with a, he was knowingly lying. So I think the uh, actions against him are well-deserved. I see Roger Stone is trying to raise money for poor Alex, uh, asking people uh, under the name of, uh, of uh, religious people to contribute to Alex Jones. My God, what hypocrisy. So I think Alex Jones got what he deserved, and I'm not worried about it setting a precedent. Yeah, but I think the Supreme Court's going to change New York Times versus Sullivan. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, I mean, I think that... that that that's coming, and I think it's going to be detrimental uh, in a way that I think will be detrimental to to free press. But you can you can feel that. And they probably have something in the docket. You know, we'll, we'll get Morgan Cloud on here before the Supreme Court set term starts. But, but I suspect that New York Times v. Sullivan is not long for this world. Well, they're not going to take it up in the next session. Uh, there have been two justices who want to who want to change it. Uh, I think the New York, I think even this court, even a couple of members of this court, as Mr. Dooley said, uh, will follow the election returns. And uh, I don't know if Roberts can deliver one or two others on some of this stuff, but man, uh, this is a court that is head, held in great disrepute by the public now. And uh, I think some of them are so arrogant, they don't care, but there may be a few others who aren't. I'm so sure. we'll see. We're, we're great confidence in Justice Kavanaugh it was totally misplaced, but well, maybe he, maybe he's an institutionalist, whatever that is. But okay. John in Kansas City, Missouri, we talked about being optimistic in Florida, James. Uh, John says Missouri Democratic choices to represent us in the United States Senate uh, are a Trump loyalist or a billionaire heiress. I'm beginning to understand why the Democrats' loss of their working class voter base was well earned. How are we meant to conclude anything other than that if Democrats are the party of the effete? Well, I, I, I see a lot of this stuff from these, quote, progressive, unquote, blogs. And, and you're right, it's a part of the Bush family, which is the most, probably most famous family in Missouri, the Anheuser Bush people. You know, Ted Kennedy was pretty good for, for working people. Franklin Roosevelt was pretty damn good for working people, all right? In this, and I'm not saying that you're saying this, don't get me wrong, but, but the idea that wealthy or privileged people don't have something to offer, it, it just does not comport with history. And I don't think that being an a heiress is anything that qualifies you for anything, but I don't think it's anything that disqualifies you for anything. And by the way, the Missouri Democrats had a chance to vote on it. All right, they 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 knew who she was. Not like the, the her last name is a secret in the state. So I'm 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 not bought in to the fact that somebody look. Look, I never my dad was a postmaster and ran a general store, hardly a psychon of wealth or privilege or anything. But but I, I don't think that's I don't think that's disqualifying. I really don't. I agree. I don't know much about Ms. Bush. Maybe she's tough, but I would certainly want to vote for her and look into who she is and what she stands for. But other Democrats have said they want her. Yeah. Uh, I think the big disappointment for Democrats uh, was that uh, Eric Greitens, the former governor, the really discredited former governor, didn't win that primary. The other Eric did. No, so it's going to be real uphill. But uh, I agree with you. I think there have been a lot of people of wealth who served the country very, very well. Uh, Chad in Milwaukee, let's turn to another Senate race, says both moderate contenders in the Democratic primary for the United States Senate dropped out of the race ahead of Tuesday's election, making the way for Mandela Barnes to win a largely uncontested race. Is this a wise strategy? Well, Chad, it wasn't a strategy. They had to drop out because they were going to lose. Right. Uh, I mean, Barnes had sewed it up. Give him credit for that. I think there was concern about Mandela Barnes. He was associated at one point with Bernie Sanders and the left wing of the party. I'm told by friends in Wisconsin that uh, he has sought to moderate during this uh, primary. He's a very attractive guy. 
if he runs as a Bernie Sanders, uh, Medicare for all left winger, I think he's going to have trouble even against Ron Johnson, who may be the worst member of the United States Senate, at least the dumbest. Uh, but if he runs as kind of a moderate progressive, a progressive, uh, then I think Mandela Barnes could be a very, uh, a very attractive candidate win and uh, become a force in the Senate. James? Ron Johnson last week said he wanted to get rid of Social Security. I, I, I can't imagine a more popular program in a state like Wisconsin, which has, you know, a pretty high percentage of elderly people. And Mandela Barnes is, is a very talented t politician. I mean, he's articulate, he's talented, he's good, and he's young, and he can clean that stuff up with, without a great deal of difficulty. It's hard to clean up the, the fact that you, and, and, and Ron Johnson has spoke very, very highly favorably of the Rick Scott plan. So I think the best thing he can do is just is punch Ron Johnson right in the mouth out of the chute, just hang the Rick Scott plan to tax hotel maids to, to sunset social security. Just hit him as hard as you can, as early as you can. He also was complicit in the fake electors um, up there. Yes. Um, so, uh, but, but I mean. They care about Social Security. It, he's an embarrassment it, to that, to that uh, a, good state. Uh, Joe in Spokane, Washington, says men jokingly have said for years, women can't live with them and can't live without them. Joe said that. I didn't say that. James yeah. didn't say that. A new truism is developing. Trump can't win a primary without him, can't win a general with him. I think what he's saying is that Republicans uh, are, are certain to win primaries if they're Trumpers, but they're going to have a hell of a time in the general election. What do you think? I think this guy has a real point. And, and uh, we've talked about this before on the show. That, you know, some of the Democrats have, like, actively promoted some of these Trumpist candidates who's won. And people who, who I respect, David Axelrod, uh, John Avalon, uh, other people have said that, you know, this is immoral. It's the only way, by the way, Republicans vote for these people hand over foot. The only way to defeat Trump is, well, drum roll, please, to defeat Trump. Right. And if we want our democracy to work and we want to save our democracy, then get out there and support these Democrats who are running against these Trumpist candidates. And, you know, it, it so far, you, you have to say we're, go, we're swimming very effectively against a historical tide. And, you know, you, you, you're in, in the hunt in a lot of Senate races that you normally wouldn't be in a wave year. You're winning elections in ways that no one would have anticipated even in June of this year. So we need to quit bedwetting and belly aching and everything and get out there and, and beat these Trumpy candidates, beat this clown in North Carolina, beat Herschel Walker. That's the only way you're going to get rid of them. All right, beat J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz, all across the board, Ron Johnson, you name it. This idiot, Blake Masters, who like pulls for the Nazis in World War II. I mean, Adam Blackstock, get out there and win these goddamn races and quit whining about, you know, who's a billionaire, whether Democrats are giving, you know, doing immoral things by supporting these people and just win. Yeah, I agree with you, James. Um, you know, look, um, I, I think your analysis of where the election is right now, three months out, is right on. If the Republicans uh, had um, had Doug Ducey in Arizona running for the Senate and Pat McCrory in North Carolina running for the uh, running for the Senate uh, and David McCormick uh, in Pennsylvania, I don't like any of those candidates, but they would have been for much more formidable than what they have. So it's been a gift. And I would say going to the House, there are two House races in the last week that Trump, the Trump guy has won in Washington State, Joe Kent, and in, uh, and in Michigan, uh, that, that uh, Grand Rapids seat, both of which, if the incumbents had won, were certainly likely Republican, now certainly at a minimum lean Democrat. That's a big change. It is a big change. And, and we, we, we just can't wish Trump and Trumpism away. We have to beat it. And it's this idea if, well, you know, maybe we could do this. No, bring them out and then get them in the open field and then politically, politically mow them down. Yep. 
Okay, Aaron in Jamaica Plains, Massachusetts. Boy, Jamaica Plains changed. I that was in of, New York. Home of the late, no, no, home of the late Bob Healy, great Boston Globe writer and editor. But uh, uh, Aaron says Democrats should all start referring to the GOP as the American Fascist Party. I'd love to hear a Democrat congressman or woman speaking on the floor and addressing my friends on the other side of the aisle from the American Fascist Party. How about that? You know, we, we always were taught very early in journalism, you don't refer to people as fascists or communists or, or Nazis or anything like that. And I still think that's true. I, it's a term that I would not use. I must say when you talk about people who worship Viktor Orban in Hungary, you're getting close to fascism. And uh, I, I wouldn't use it, but um, I think it, 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 it may not be the lethal term that uh, it may not be as lethal uh, as was the case a few years ago, because these people have gotten not only crazier, they've gotten far, far more right wing, James. Well, I, I, I wouldn't use the term not because I, I don't think that that uh, many Republicans are Blake Masters. I don't know if he's if he certainly is very tolerant of fascism. The people that support Victor Oven are certainly very tolerant of it. But the reason I wouldn't use the word fascist is because too many of these dumb some bitches don't even know what it means. I just call them extreme. All right, you have to be relatively well educated to understand the word fascist and fascist and, and have its historical conflict, but I wouldn't have any problem calling them that. But but I just don't think it's the most effective way to, to deal with them. If you, extreme, everybody knows what that is. Our final question is from, is from Andrew in Los Angeles, California. Uh, Andrew says, assuming Biden doesn't run in 2024, do you think an openly gay candidate like Pete Buttigieg would have a realistic shot at the presidency? Yeah. I mean, Jared Poulos, and you know, he made, not just Pete Buttigieg, I mean, Jared Poulos, I think he's openly gay governor of Colorado. He's right. very effective. Senator from Wisconsin. Hey, yeah, Tammy Baldwin. Right, Senator from uh, Arizona. I mean, I don't know uh, Christian Sinema. Yeah, I mean, uh, but she doesn't have a chance. Uh, and I mean, if they lost, I, it would probably be for reasons other than the fact that they were gay. There's just there's also a lot of top, talented, you know, non-gay people out there. But, but absolutely, I mean, one of the great success stories in America is you know the the modern real lurch toward gay rights, which is a good thing. The people who wouldn't vote for Pete Buttigieg or any other gay lesbian yeah. candidate because uh, because of that weren't going to vote for him in the first place. So, well, you got uh, you know. there's another problem. You got there's some people who would say, "Look, I, I don't care if the person's gay, but if I, if I think that there'd be a weaker general election candidate, he, that that's the way some people think." In, in terms of primaries, they could say the same thing about a, a female or, or or black person yeah. or you know anything else. He actually he he did. He, I guess he finished third, uh, and all if you tally all the primaries last time. Uh, and he was uh, an obscure candidate to begin with, so he did pretty well. So we'll we'll just see. All right, keep those. Please keep those questions coming in. You know, and now for the outrage of the week. James, everyone should read Caitlin Dickerson's Atlantic piece, We Need to Take Away the Children, on the Trump administration's purposeful and inhumane policy of separating families that came across the southern border. It's 30,000 words, well worth the time, a brilliantly reported piece. The cruelty is staggering. Here are some of the perpetrators who took little children away from their parents. The primary hate monger, Stephen Miller and his wife, Katie, they were too busy to talk to rep reporters because they were taking care of their infant child, no doubt blissfully ignorant of those little children they took away from their moms and dads. Even after this miserable policy was ending, there still are 700 children who can't find their parents. Some of the others, Gene Hamilton, who prated as a great family man, except for all those kids he sold out. Tom Homan. Kevin McAleen, Chad Wolf, Matthew Albens, Rod Rosenstein, Scott Lloyd, and there are others. These people and this policy, to borrow a phrase from Hannah Arendt, represent the banality of evil. 
Well, I, obviously, I, I'm going to second that because I read the piece. My daughter, who is pregnant, read it and had to put it down three different times. I, I guess it, not to deprive our, our listeners of a, another outrage, my outrage is, is the right-wing media having a conniption, a hissy fit, uh, God knows what not about the FBI executing a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. Well, if there's nothing, why don't, why don't you ask Trump to release the contents of the search warrant? The Justice Department can't do it because they have a policy, makes sense, that they don't want to run the risk of prejudice in a jury. But Trump has the search warrant. If it's about nothing, if it's all the, you know, deep state, then tell us what's in the goddamn search warrant. Because everybody is speculating uh, as to what this means, what it is. I, I will join the speculation and say, I bet you when they get to the bottom of this, money is involved somewhere. It always is. You, 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 you bet on money and Trump, you're going to win 100% of the time. But at any rate, they could clear it up. They, 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 MAGA, Hayden, New York Times, the Post, they're all going nuts. And Trump could do a great service to the country and just release the search warrant. Yeah, I, I agree. Go, it's easy to fix. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Fields, Raycon, and Miracle Brand in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.